Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before you listen to today's episode, this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help support History Hack, which is run entirely by volunteers using our Patreon account. There are links on all of our episodes. Or if a subscription is not your thing, you can also now drop us a line on Kofi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink. So if you hear an episode, you like it and you want to chip in just once, then you can do that too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. I'm very comfy today. Why am I comfy, Zach? Because we're back in your whole kind of World War One world. Is that even a... That's like alliteration. I'm a poet and I didn't know yeah, it. I can't wait for you to go to the Great War Group conference, actually, and get sucked into the World War One world for a weekend. Is that going to happen, though? Am I going to get sucked in? Are you going to tempt me over to the dark side? I'm, I'm not convinced. I... Well, you can't drink, so you're probably just going to have to suck it up and allow yourself. Otherwise, it's going to be a very tedious weekend for you. It is. It is. Right. So today we are joined by Megan Kelleher, who is a PhD researcher at the University of Kent. Megan specialises in the work of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and at one stage, I think, worked for the CWGC and was involved in all the brilliant stuff that they do. Today, we're going to be talking to her about war graves, but with a difference. Um, so rather than talking about our usual perception, we're going to be talking about the ones that are based here in the UK. A really interesting topic. I know Megan's written about this recently and I've read her research. It's absolutely fantastic. So this is going to be a great one. Megan, brilliant to see you. Thank you for joining us. I think this is your first time on one of these, isn't it? How are you doing? Yeah, yeah it is. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is my first time on the podcast and uh, I think my first podcast. So yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I'm doing quite well. It is quite warm outside, but aside from that, it's uh, all going well. Yeah, you, you have said in your own words, you are a ginger. <laughs> you don't do heat. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just cowering until the sun goes away again this is the British thing isn't it complain when it's cold and then we complain when it's warm as well it's just how we roll let's um let's start by talking because you specialize in something that like everyone thinks of Commonwealth War Graves Commission and thinks of the cemeteries abroad big beautiful cemeteries that are amazingly well cared for uh, that our tax money goes to support to look after uh, land basically that was given to us by France Belgium whatever in perpetuity for our war dead but you focus on war, war graves in the UK, don't you? So let's start with the basics. How would a guy or a woman end up buried here and not on the actual battlefield if they are warded? 
Yeah, I think it's, I'm the first to admit as well that when I think of the CWGC's work in the UK, I didn't necessarily think about it until I actually started my research and working for them three years ago now. So I've been with them since 2018. Um, And I started looking at this sort of research as preparation for going out to the battlefields myself when I was working as a centenary intern. Um, And something that you'll hear me say a lot about my research is I sort of come into this um, by accident in some ways where I had so many questions I didn't know the answer to so I thought oh, I'll just write a PhD on it and uh, see how it goes and see if I can find some of these answers um, and also something else that you'll hear me say quite a bit is that there's no straight answer in some of these um, questions um, as there's quite a few reasons why some people um, may be commemorated in the UK um, so general reasons that um, I tend to sort of categorise them by are from examples of things like dying from sickness or disease in a military hospital after being repatriated back to the UK for treatment, which is something I think people are aware of, but might not necessarily connect um, the cemeteries and churchyards near to them with the, the military hospitals from the time. Um, in addition, people could have died in training or other accidents whilst they're in service um, or due to enemy action over the UK itself. So, for example, um, air raids. And then another example is through being killed in action in the air or at sea and then their bodies being later washed ashore. Um, so then they're commemorated here. Um, And I think as well, it's really important to know in terms of facts and figures, because I think this is one of the most surprising things for people. Um, The numbers always astound me as there are over 300,000 casualties commemorated by the CWGC from the two world wars across the UK. And they can be found at over 12,000 locations from large purpose built cemeteries to a single grave in a local churchyard. And these can be found across the British Isles from Orkney to Cornwall. Um, and from the west coast of Wales to the Kent coast. Um, so these sites are all over the country um, and they can range in different types as well. So we have examples of directly maintained sites. So one of the examples that people may be familiar with is Brookwood Military Cemetery down in Surrey. Um, this is a site that has a dedicated team there and a lot of their work is very similar to those found overseas. And then we have military cemeteries. Um, so an example near to where I grew up was Shawncliffe Military Cemetery down in Kent. Um, And these are sort of pre-existed military cemeteries. So Zach, there may be some uh, Napoleonic and slightly uh, in-between period of casualties there for you as well. Oh, you know how to tempt me. (laughs) Cemetery is amazing. It's incredible, isn't it? And it's it's usually owned by the MOD and you have so many different stories there, including casualties from the two world wars. Um, we have some war graves plots as well. So, for example, there's one at Cranwell in the village, um, St. Andrew's Churchyard, where there's a group of casualties that are in a dedicated part of the cemetery. And so the commission can sort of um, recreate some of the things they do for a general war cemetery on a smaller scale. Um, We also have things like screen walls, um, which are, for example, if casualties are cremated in the UK. Um, And so an example of this that we can see is at Kettering Cemetery on London Road uh, in Northamptonshire, which is one of the ones that um, the team in the east that I work with for the commission um, look after. And one of the most common examples that we have, though, which make up around 90 percent of the commission's commitment in the UK are scatter graves, which are usually 10 or less graves in churchyards and things like that. Um, and these are sort of examples where families have taken them in, buried them in their local churchyard. So again, near to me, I've got casualties where there's only two war graves, three war graves, and even a single war grave. Um, so yeah, it's, it's quite a broad range of research. This must be quite a kind of challenge 
on many levels, not only in terms of jurisdiction, but also in terms of the logistics, the maintenance. You, you've said how you've got, in some cases, a, a single isolated individual in, in one location. In others, you may have a cluster of individuals. So, so it's a very different thing to what we associate out in, in France and Belgium, where you've got very obviously, you know, these the, the cemeteries out there are marked by their own walls. And it's because everybody's together, logistically, it's easier to maintain those sites. So talk us through those challenges and not just about the logistics and the maintenance, but also about kind of the law and the jurisdiction and, and the way in which these become CWGC responsibility. Yeah. Um, so in the majority of cases, um, this is something that the, the commission have to consider. And we can see that in the archival records. Um, sometimes it can be really simple. So I mentioned Brookwood Military Cemetery earlier, and that was a slightly um, less complicated issue in terms of the land being granted to them by the local authorities. Um, sometimes they do have the rights to plots of land similar to those agreements made overseas, particularly with the Second World War, which is slightly outside of my research. Um, and this means that they can have similar procedures in place to those found at sites abroad and have a bit more say in what could be done. But most of the time it is more complicated, like you say, Zach. Um, families have often buried their loved ones themselves, bearing the cost of the memorials and the maintenance. And then the commission have come in um, and asked to put in commission headstones, for example, um, technically, in some cases, the families have the grave rights. Um, and so we have to remember that when we're sort of talking about their work and, and that sort of thing, even today. Um, the Commission often also have to gain permission from church authorities or local authorities to conduct their work in particular sites. So initially, historically, what they would have done is made maintenance agreements with these um local authorities and church authorities sometimes they get that for free sometimes it will be paying something like uh, a certain amount a year um, I think it's something like seven shillings a year that sort of thing to the churchyard or the local authority per grave um, and then as time goes on and they have to do more maintenance work they will still have to go to the church or the local authorities um, depending on the site and actually ask for permission to do anything there um, so, for example, if a private memorial falls into disrepair, they can't just go in and put in a new headstone. They actually need to liaise with the relevant people, fill out lots of paperwork relating to that um, and including contacting the next of kin if they can to ensure that everyone's happy with this. Um, so it is a really complicated procedure um, and something that continues to be done today. As I mentioned, you know, there's there's still renovation work and maintenance work going on. Um, furthermore, it's also difficult sometimes to create planting schemes and such like, particularly if there isn't a dedicated team um, at that site every day. If, you know, for example, there's a single war grave. Um, so one of the things that was discussed in the 1920s when the Commission started to look at the various concerns in the UK was planting flowers like they did abroad. And they wanted to make sure that it wasn't a case of they put in these flowers and then no one looked after them. Um, as their operations team was largely mobile in the UK, Many of the graves were on their own or scattered throughout a site um, and they had to adapt to suit this. Um, so, for example, some of their policies in the UK just state things like making sure that the grave was tidy, clear of all weeds, the grass was fairly regularly cut and the naming of the casualty was legible. That's the thing that they look for in legibility. Um, and this is something that they still strive to do today. And it's a really fascinating example of their adaptability um, when we compare it to, to sites elsewhere. You mentioned families there. Um, so the whole thing about Commonwealth war games was uniformity, wasn't it? Which is easier to achieve when you just say, look, they're all getting the same headstone in France, whether you like it or not, we'll look after them, we'll do the horticulture, and that's that. 
But when the graves are around the corner, is it more difficult to balance the family and to achieve that uniformity where every man is commemorated in the same way, regardless of rank or nationality? Yeah, definitely. I think, again, that's where these private memorials particularly come into play, um, because sometimes uh, the families may have put in those private memorials. And then in the 60s, for example, say we can no longer maintain this because we're in our 80s. Can something be done to maintain this? And I think that there's still questions today where people were seeing these war graves that are looked after by private memorials that might have fallen into disrepair and sort of at what stage are they stepping in? Um, And there are clear guidelines that the commission follows today in sort of modern times. Um, The families themselves were actually sent the same forms that they would have done if they'd had a loved one who had died overseas, asking for things like the particulars of the casualty, if they wanted a personal inscription, religious emblem, things like that. Um, but sometimes they'd actually write to the commission and say, we've got a personal, uh, a private memorial, they're in our family grave, don't worry about them sort of thing. And they had to respect that because they own the grave rights. Um, and in many ways, they actually have more of a say, sort of, as you've alluded to, about how they commemorated their loved ones over time. Um, and there's so many stories in the commission archives of commemoration changes, complaints over maintenance of private memorials. Um, so the commission don't maintain private memorials. They have never done so. And they just sort of check the legibility. And then if it's deemed illegible, they then go through the, their processes. Um, but there's also debates over alternative commemoration. And it really gives a unique insight. And I think what's really fascinating about the UK graves for me is having visited the battlefields and heard about all of these challenges that they had about, you know, equality um, in death in terms of the headstones and things. We're seeing examples um, in the UK of sort of a what if that hadn't happened. Um, So we sometimes have these really grand memorials or we might have a small curb headstone to mark them. Um, And so it's really an interesting challenge for them. Um, The only only possible comparison abroad obviously is the one everybody loves to go to which is Zillabek churchyard where I don't I know I know I've read a book on it because it was full of Etonians years ago but I don't know how that quite I think they were all killed so quickly in the early months that the headstones and the memorials were up before Commonwealth war graves and imperial war graves got going and it was just easier to just let it go than take away those huge family monuments that ended up there for those officers. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's that's really fascinating in and of itself. And it's it's always that sort of rule with the commission's work of for every rule you think you found, there's always an exception somewhere. Um, and I think that's what keeps me on my toes in my research, because I sort of think, well, how comes that's happened? Um, how did the family and the commission agree to that? Um, and yeah, particularly the e-files that they have, so the inquiries files that they recently digitized, which was really helpful when you're trying to study a PhD in a pandemic, by the way, yeah. <laughs> um, was so, so helpful to look through because you saw so many different challenges that they had and the conversations that they were having about, you know, can we make an exception here, but not here sort of thing. And it's really interesting to look through those records and also see the families privately grieving, but also trying to publicly take some authority and sort of say have a say in what's going on that they might not have necessarily been able to do as easily if they have been buried in for example France or Belgium or slightly further afield. There must be instances where this this kind of doesn't work though and I'm thinking particularly about families that have got loved ones abroad versus families who've got loved ones at home and if you have got somebody who's buried overseas, the fact that your neighbour or the person down the street from you can go and visit a grave must actually really grate on you. So is there evidence of tension 
between those who are having to go to memorials to remember their loved ones because they can't afford to go out to Belgium or France to see their loved ones versus those who can just go to the local churchyard. And, and yes, the loss is the same, but actually the process of mourning ends up being very different. I haven't come across anything like that yet, um, as I think like you sort of um, you said, um, people going abroad um, couldn't go abroad regularly, rather, and see their loved ones. And so the local war memorial would become sort of their focal point of grieving. Sometimes people also made shrines in their home to their loved one. Um, and that was their place of their private active of mourning and things. Um, and I think as well, this is how local war memorials have become so important in the, the following years. Um, so one example that I always like to use in talks is there is a war memorial in Tolleton in Nottinghamshire, which is right next to Tolleton Airfield, which is um, quite famous uh, for sort of its connections to the aviation side of the war. Um, and the war memorial is there, it's well attended, their remembrance services, but directly opposite, there's the single casualty in there with a private memorial that people don't necessarily know is commemorated there. Um, so people might go around and commemorate Gunner Sweet, which was his name um, there, but not necessarily pop across the road into the churchyard and try and find his grave. Um, one thing that families also decide to do, um, which can cause some confusion, and I've been very guilty of visiting a churchyard and getting slightly confused by this, is that people sometimes put the names of their loved ones um, on their family memorials themselves. Um, so, for example, um, the First World War flying ace James McCudden's um, family have a private memorial in Chatham Maidstone Road Cemetery, and it names um, the three brothers that died in the First World War. But only one of them, William McCudden, is actually buried there, and he died in a training accident in the UK. Um, and if you ever get to see the memorial, it's absolutely stunning. It's got a um, an officer's sword, a cross, and it's got all of the names there. But if you didn't know that that James and one of his brothers was buried out in France, you'd assume that he was there. Um, and so it looks as though I'm sort of making presumptions here rather than necessarily having evidence there. That might be a case where families might use the family plot as a place to remember them and then go out to the battlefields when they can. Um, there are sometimes rumours as well to suggest that um, in some cases, families had their own sort of mourning service um, in their family plot where they might sometimes place things like the personal effects of the casualty there. I haven't come across any evidence of that, but that's sort of something that's discussed um, when you're talking to other First World War historians. So that's something I'm definitely looking to find out more about. And I think as well, it's really interesting thinking about the geography of the time in general. So one of the cases that I found was um, a widow of Sadler Atherton. Um, he was commemorated in Fakenham Cemetery in Norfolk. And she wrote to the commission to effectively say she could no longer look after his grave. And she, at the time she wrote to them in the 50s or 60s, was in Great Yarmouth. So they're in the same county and it's about an hour's journey by car today. But that journey at the time that she was writing was difficult in and of itself. And it's really fascinating to see that you know, sometimes families, if they're not buried on their doorstep or the family move away, it's equally difficult for them to regularly visit them. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of different challenges there. But as far as I'm aware, I've not heard of um, newspaper articles, for example, where families are quite upset that their neighbour's loved one is buried in the local churchyard. And do you get issues where, you know, somebody turns around to CWGC for assistance, CWGC effectively take over responsibility, but then the family kind of still wants back in as it were and they still want influence and they they want things done in a certain way D does that happen 
Yeah, there's there's definitely evidence of that in um, the archives in terms of their conversations about alternative commemorations. So sometimes it could be that the casualty is marked by a commission headstone and the family wants to put um, the widow's name on there, for example, when they die. Um, and sometimes the commission will say um, no to this. Um, the policies today are very different to the ones that I'm looking at at the time, where it's um, it's sort of case by case for us today. They have very set procedures. Um, but in many cases, they will say, OK, put his name on a private memorial or her name on a private memorial, um, turn it into the family plot. And if you can destroy the commission headstone, that would be you know helpful. That's the sort of way they might manage it. In other cases, they might put their foot down with certain things. Um, and so it's it's a really complicated way of doing things. And I think they try to be as flexible as they can, particularly in the early years in terms of what they can manage in term, um, when helping the sort of bereaves. But there are lots of letters in the archives where people could be quite upset by it um, because they are grieving a new relative and then are also having to deal with um, sort of liaising about an, an older relative. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The only one I can think of going the other way is that one woman that was quietly buried or her ashes scattered, I can't remember which, at Bedford House. She wanted to be with her boy and they made the exception for that some years ago, didn't they? Yeah, I think I've, I think I've heard of that one, yeah. And yeah. It's, it's the same with the Ministry of Defence ones um, that are not necessarily looked after by the Commission, but you see mm. examples there of exceptions to their rules, which again is outside my research, but yeah. even if I'm in a churchyard, I'll sort of notice it and go, oh, that's There's really interesting. There's also the dog, isn't there? That's World War II, though. But yeah, yeah, I've heard of the story of the dog. <laughs> yeah, it's in Normandy, I think. Yeah, I've been. It's in Normandy. Uh, I'm sure it is. But yeah, it's uh, the dog was part of his World War service. It was part of whatever his job was. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts and when the dog died it was buried with him because there's like a shameful amount of dog toys on the grave as well everyone's forgotten the guy it's just all about the dog (laughs) one one thing I know your work shows and the Commonwealth War Graves Commission themselves are frank about is that for every rule you've said the commission has there's an exception and we've just talked about two of them so give us an idea of some more that you've come across in your research Um, so most of them actually relate to the 
policies around their dates of responsibility. So the commission have very clear dates of when their work will start and when their work will end. So for the First World War, it's the 4th of August 1914 to the 31st of August 1921. And then for the Second World War, it's the 3rd of September 1939 to the 31st of December 1947. And there's additional criteria if, for example, someone serves um, with the auxiliary services. So we have examples of one that I found was Sergeant Paul from the Royal Field Artillery, and he died in 1921 of illness that was attributable to war service, um, but had been discharged two years previously due to his injuries. And when the commission wrote to his family to say, I'm really sorry, he's not entitled to a war grave, his widow wrote back to say that she was slightly confused because she previously had um, a rejection letter about putting up a private memorial for her loved one because um, the commission actually had the grave rights, which was an accident um, that was put into the maintenance agreement, but people hadn't noticed at the time. And she actually refers to this, and I really love this turn of phrase because I'd never heard it before. She referred to it as rather being like a dog in the manger kind of treatment. Um, And so she writes to them and sort of says, what can be done about it? And in that particular case, um, the financial advisor says that they will put a standard headstone over the grave at the cost of the IWGC to avoid arguing over the cost with the next of kin, um, particularly as there are some confusions there. But then if you look at other cases, um, it can be that families were rejected on that case. Um, One family actually wrote to say, um, Earl Haig had a a war grave, why can't my loved one? Um, And the commission said to them, well, he was, he was an exceptional case given his background. um, And, in actual fact, the commission don't look after Earl Haig's grave. It's not a commission headstone and isn't maintained by them. Um, but obviously the widow didn't necessarily notice this because she wouldn't have known the nuances between, you know, what is a war grave and things like that. There's one in Oxford as well. He was 23 and had long been out of the army by the time he, he actually gassed himself in 1921, just before he went out to join the Indian Civil Service. And he has Commonwealth headstone on his actual grave um, because they went in and commemorated him after the letters rubbed off on the family's headstone so he now has a commonwealth war graves headstone on the family grave I literally plonked on top of it yeah there's a lot of cases where they've done that and now they put in um, the pedestal markers like you see on Gallipoli because the foundation's slightly shorter Um, but at the time it depends on when they went in whether it's a standard commission headstone um, another one that I found really interesting was there was a case where someone was commemorated in two locations, one in Essex, and one in Lancashire. And um, they thought that they'd resolved it and said that the grave was in Lancashire. But the local um, vicar had actually said, well, I conducted this service personally and I know that no one's removed um, the, the remains that were in this grave in Essex. And so they had to come up with explanations and things like that. And effectively, what happened as a result of that was that they decided to use the Lancashire burial as the site for the named casualty and then put in a grave marker for an unknown soldier down in Essex. Um, But there seems to have been a lot of to and fro for a number of years about that because people were coming in and and writing back and saying, actually, this is not what happened. Um, There's also cases of repatriations that um, people are aware of. And again, um, in this particular case, there is a private memorial on his grave, but it's a known uh, repatriation case um, where Lieutenant Austin from the Royal Field Artillery was killed at Labassay in January of 1915. And he's repatriated back to the UK and buried in Canterbury St. Martin Churchyard next to um, the King's School in Canterbury. 
and his funeral was held with full military honours. Um, I've actually seen some really beautiful images at the British Motor Museum's archives of this this service where they're showing um, his sort of funeral cortege and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it's really interesting because he was the heir of the Austin Motor Company. Um, and there were sort of rumours around the time and sort of into the 60s about him being uh, illegally repatriated back. There's no evidence to suggest how he came back and sort of where it comes in around the time of the repatriation ban. Um, but there's a case there of, of repatriation. Um, and there was also rumours about why he was chosen, why he chose to be buried down in Kent as opposed to near his family home in Birmingham. Um Excuse me. And it was believed that um, it was to do with the fact that he'd made a pact with his school friends before the repatriation ban came in. So all be buried near to their old school. Mm. Um, But it's fascinating because then Albert Ball's father writes to the commission and says, you let my friend's son have a funeral here in 1915 or you let the repatriation happen, which obviously it wasn't them that, that did that. They hadn't come into existence just yet. Um, And sort of says with Albert Ball's dad making (laughs) a sort of political thing out of his son as well he was yeah in Nottingham wasn't he so a lot of it I think was about him and not exactly. yeah and in his his letters he's even saying you know I attended this funeral personally if anyone deserves to come home it should be my son mm. and then of course he doesn't um allow the commission to concentrate Albert Ball's grave into um a site on the Somme I think it's Cabaret Rouge and so that's yeah, why German cemetery yeah quite outstanding headstone and he also he bought the field where he fell didn't he yeah yeah. And that's really interesting for me as someone who lives now near to Nottingham, mm-hmm. um, hearing all of these stories. And, you know, Albert Boy is the local um, flying ace and sort of hero and things like that. So, yeah, those sorts of stories really come in. And I quite enjoy reading these e-files and seeing the connections of place names and that sort of thing. Although it does increase my list of places to visit, if I'm honest. My favourite one is is Front Base, not UK, um, because it's there's two brothers side by side in Eek Town Cemetery, but one is a 1st of July casualty. And it was like, how the hell does a 1st of July casualty from the Somme, because he's 10th West Yorkshire's, get to eat? And the story is that the parents were so desperate. For, they were a shipping family. They were quite well to do in the Northeast. And the family wanted them to be next to each other. So what they did is throughout the war, while the war was still going on, they were moving his body gradually northwards from the Somme and camping it out in French family crypts and stuff until they got him to eat to be next to his brother where he was buried from 1915 so yeah that's oh my gosh first of july casualty in eek town cemetery i had no idea i've been to eek town cemetery so many times James major and- james not if anyone wants to go and see them and his brother oh, Henry. Okay. are they the ones that um put uh the bell tower in to St George's Chapel or am I thinking of a different casualty? It could well be because that is almost entirely Etonian and they are Etonian so yeah it wouldn't surprise me. This is this is the thing it's always these exceptional rules and, and things like that and I think when people go to Ypres as well they often visit um, uh, Prince Maurice of Battenberg's grave and, and places like that and see the the equality there and then expect it in lots of different places which is really interesting mm-hmm. um, that there are these exceptions out there. Is this a thing that kind of rumbles on for, for decades does it even continue perhaps not necessarily to this day because obviously I have a heck of a lot of time has now passed uh, since these these folks died but presumably this isn't sort of something that that's over by you know say 1922 or something it must rumble on so how long is this kind of an issue for 
I think it's even an issue today, to be honest, um, because we still have commemoration cases coming in. And particularly there's um, a group, I think they're called In From The Cold, where they talk about casualties that might not have previously been commemorated as they've been missed off of um, records from the time. Um, There's also a lot of um, wonderful members of the public who look at their local war graves and might not necessarily know about it on a a larger scale, but will know that private so-and-so's in a local churchyard and if it falls into disrepair we'll write to the commission um and so you'll see on their website sometimes they'll do monthly um requests to contact the family of and in some cases it'll be in the uk and in some of those cases it'll be private memorials that have fallen into disrepair or casualties that have previously not been commemorated um being commemorated um so there's lots of different examples um one of my um ones that i've visited in the last year was um a set of quadruple a quadruple headstone was installed in nottingham general cemetery where a group identified one casualty was buried in a particular plot and then they found that three others were also there and so there's a quadruple headstone to mark his grave and these quadruple headstones are made to order and there's only two sites in the world that have them and both of them are in the uk which is really fascinating yeah i think it it absolutely it's never been a win i don't think so um there is that cemetery, that churchyard I was talking about. There is a, a depression in the floor that I can tell you who's buried in that unmarked grave. Um, and he's on, his name's O'Neill, and he's on the Menning Gate. But it's just a case of having enough evidence to prove it. I know it is because I've got a description from someone that says uh, he's buried next to so-and-so uh, and we visited his grave and, and that's where so-and-so had put him because it was all by the same unit. It's, a, it's the lifeguard. And they wrote about where they put him. And there is a depression in the floor and no headstone. But um, it's a case of there, there's also different rules about how you prove things like that, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. And there's lots of um, procedures that go through and it, it can take some time for them to get through them as well, which is really interesting. Um, and even in the historic records, like I say, it can often take years. And that's not just because they're writing letters as opposed to emails and things like that today. Um, it's, it's also a case of making sure that they've got it absolutely right. So, for example, if they get a case, um, there was a casualty uh, who was buried up at Briggs Cemetery. His name was, uh, he was Second Lieutenant Harrison. Um, and his friend had written to the commission in the 60s to say why has my friend not been commemorated by you um he'd been killed in a flying accident at waddington in 1918 and it because he'd been missed uh, missed off of the the records and things like that it was the sort of first time they were hearing about it and so him and another casualty were listed on a revised maintenance agreement um but again it's just a case of they had to go through the procedures of making sure with the various military authorities that he was the war casualty his death could be attributable to military service and in our dates of responsibility and so that took some time in and of itself and sometimes they even write to places like the ministry of pensions and those sorts of things to make sure that the people who are writing to them are who they say they are which is really interesting presumably there must also be cases where you know they they just have to turn around and say we can't do anything so i don't know what the particulars are with the case that you're talking about alex but I'm guessing it's kind of the policy that what if we can't get it right when we're not touching it sort of thing. Is is that how it works? Yeah, to my knowledge, it is in the sense of if they if it can't be definitively proved to be an individual um, and, you know, there can't be anyone else at all. I think that's generally the the case and and how it works. Um, But the commemorations team are 
wonderful people and they have a very clear set of guidelines on their website to to help you to double check whether or not that person could be a war casualty what sort of evidence they need to see um, and that sort of thing so for example that's how I found out about the potential additional requirements for auxiliary services um, as well. So how can people get involved in let me start that again because that just it doesn't sound natural. This has been absolutely fascinating, Megan. How can people get involved with your research? But also, I I can imagine that people will now, hopefully, because this is kind of the idea, right? They'll want to go out into the field. This is the whole point of you writing the PhD, that they will now want to kind of apply that. And I know you've been on social media kind of encouraging people to use the, the, the lockdown experience rather than going out to Flanders to commemorate folks to look for the local connections. And um, and, and explore those. So give people a sense of how they can do that and also how they can crucially find out about what you're doing. Yeah, so the the first part is probably to find out how to learn a bit more about my own research. Um, and like you say, Zach, I do post quite a bit on Twitter relating to my research, which includes sort of advertising latest blog posts and such like on there. Um, and it's a really nice way for me to engage with people because one of the things that I want to make sure my PhD does is encourage people to go outside and tell me about their local casualties and their stories. One of the things that I love about my job with the commission is that I'll go and someone will say to me, I walk past that churchyard every day to go and get the morning paper, for example. I've never noticed that person's war grave. I'm going to go and look at it. Um, And then they'll send me an email six months later and say, look, there's this one here. Um, Did you know it was there? And that sort of thing. And my family have long since... uh, learn how to spot a war grave so they sort of send me pictures of war graves and say look I'm on this particular site today with work on my lunch break I spotted these and thought of you which is quite a strange thing to get as a message but it's, it's a really endearing way of looking at things um in terms of learning a bit more about the commission's work, one of the things that they launched in 2020 was the Our War Graves Your History project, um, which they're continuing to talk about, which is a fantastic resource to look at local sites, which includes regional breakdowns of the sites and the team, um, and also learning a bit more about the individual needs of that region in terms of the maintenance of horticulture that they do. So, for example, up in Scotland, they use granite headstones, and you can find out why um, there. Um, running a range as well of free talks and tours about their history, which is often done um, by volunteers, as well as um, talks about the operational work and their archives. Um, And these are fantastic resources that are free to use. um, So it's well worth organising them and joining them on these talks and tours. Um, They also have some fascinating resources on their website about the work they do more generally as well. And I'm always using their free app for when I'm out and about and visiting local war graves. So just last week, I was taking the dog out for a walk, walked past the cemetery and thought, I wonder if there's a war grave in there. Went on the app, um, it had my location and it can tell me all of the war graves within a 10 mile radius so I can go and visit them if I choose to. Um, And then if you also want to get involved in a more active way in the Commission's work, one of the things that they have is the Commonwealth War Graves Foundation, and they're the charitable element of the Commission, and they're an educational charity that run a range of projects, and they are actually one of the reasons why I got into my research as well, as I've been able to benefit from some of the projects that they do. Um, So I think I mentioned at the start that I was an intern for the Commonwealth War Graves Foundation back in 2018. And in normal times, they run the internship each summer. So it's young people going out to the battlefields um, and working at some of their more famous sites, learning a bit more about the work that they do, their research, and being able to attend some really once in a lifetime things um, that they get to do. 
Um, they also have volunteering opportunities in the UK for things like Eyes on Hands on Scheme, uh, which is with Annington Homes, the Cantor Speakers Programme as well. And they recently created a digital exhibition around Noor Inayat Khan, which uh, she's commemorated down at the Runnymede Memorial in Surrey. And this was done with Girl Guiding UK. And they've got some really amazing things coming up as well. I don't want to give too much away, but that kind of gives you an idea of their sort of work there. So supporting them is also another great way to get involved. And just tell folks what your Twitter handle is so that they can follow you. Um, so my Twitter handle is at Megan E. Kelleher. Um, apologies for the slightly awkward last name. Um, my last name is probably spelt how it sounds. It's a lot less complicated uh, than it sounds. <laughs> Brilliant. So folks, follow Megan on Twitter. And Megan, thank you ever so much for this. I know this is a cause that will be kind of close to the hearts of a lot of um, our listeners, certainly those with a World War One e interest, but also those with a kind of a general interest in in veterans and honouring their sacrifice. So this has been a really interesting one. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to speak to you both. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.